What is up, Thrive Tribe? Welcome back to the Thrive University podcast. I am your host and chief energy officer, Jeremy Abramson, and I have such a special guest for you today. I'm so excited to bring in Vinny Tortorich. And Vinny is a best-selling author. He has a top-rated podcast. He has even a top-rated movie called Fat, a documentary which talks all about the importance of healthy fats in our diet. And he's also the owner of purevitaminclub.com. And those are all really cool accolades that Vinny has, but his story is even more impressive. He overcame cancer and he's overcame so much adversity in his life. And I know you are going to gain some inspiration from his story. So again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Thank you so much for your energy. It genuinely means the world that you are part of this conscious community that we are cultivating. I love you so much. And now let's get to the show. What is up? Thrive, Thrive. Do I have a special treat for you today? I got the man, the myth, the legend, Vinny Tortorich in the house. I've been so excited for this conversation. Welcome to the show, Vinny. Jeremy, thanks for having me on, man. This this is great. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this too. And, and just to let your audience know how good you are, you've already educated me before the show started. I always thought that TikTok was a a place for grandmothers to do some silly dance they did back in the flapper days. And, and <laughs> you made me realize that, wait, this is a great way to disseminate information. So uh, thank you already, man. I'm already learning today. Hey, brother. Well, I'm just paying it forward for all of the knowledge that you've dropped in your 40 plus year career. And can you just provide a little bit of context because I know things have changed drastically over the last 40 years, but talk a little bit about what piqued your interest. How did you get into the fitness and health industry to begin with? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> back in 1970. Uh, I walked into a gym. I, I basically just kind of wandered into a garage gym owned by a guy named Joe Bonadonna, who was this, this, behemoth of a man you know he he was just muscled up and we're talking about the days when you didn't see that right and he was a, a family friend you know i grew up in in cajun country but there were just this enclave of italians in my hometown and the italians kind of all stuck together you know they were trade vegetables and if someone went deer hunting and someone killed a deer you know the meat would get spread around what have you and so all the all the older Italians kind of raised the, you know, it's like, it wasn't just your parents teaching you and disciplining you. It could be your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, Joe was a family friend. My mom and dad went to school with him. They grew up together. And, uh, and I, I was uh, just this outcast kid, even at 10, you know, well, let's say I was eight at the time. I was already the, the nerdy outcast kid, you know, it, you know, I already knew what my destiny was. And, and this guy, I'd walk into his gym and, and he would, he would not goof on me. You know, he was nice to me. 
So why not go back the next day and, and just marvel at this guy who, who's got these giant biceps and his big, you know, he looked like a superhero to me. And he was nice to me. That, that was the main part. And he started having me do push-ups and pull-ups and, you know, just different things that, you know, body weight exercises. And every now and then, I, I never forget when he would give me like a really lightweight bar and he would all right, press it over your head and he would make a big deal out of it, you know? And I was like, yeah, this is, this is kind of where I belong. So I, pretty much my entire life, I, I've been involved in, in fitness, even before I knew that's what I wanted to do. And of course, you know, as I got older, when I got into my early teens, I became, you know, very strong. By the time I was 13 or 12, I was bench pressing, I don't know, umpteen amounts of weight and squatting all this weight and the whole thing. And, and I didn't look like other 12 or 13-year-old kids. And unbeknownst to me, because my parents were nerds, my daddy was literally, my dad went to college on a band scholarship. He was a band nerd. Hey, and my, band geeks. He, my dad was a band geek. At one time a band camp type of guy. And my mom was uh, just as, you know, just as bookworm, you know, they were just geeks. They did not raise athletes. They didn't know from athletics, you know, and um, it was a surprise to all of us when I became a really good athlete, including me. Um, I, I, I showed up well on the football field, baseball, basketball, you know, I was just this crazy kind of athlete. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, Vinny. Did you play college ball at Tulane? I did. Uh, I got a football scholarship. Again, kind of crazy for us. You know, it was like when, when colleges started writing to me, I think it was in my junior year, we started getting these letters. Um, you know, and they, every college kid that played could tell you we got the same letters. It was like, hey, we recognize you as a, a potential athlete that, you know, we're watching you, basically, is what they're telling you. And, uh, you know, then you start wondering, are they coming to the games or how do they know? And yeah, they start, they start sending scouts to the games, all the, all the colleges. And at first it's the smaller colleges and these coaches aren't hiding, you know, they might have a hat on their head that says ASU or something on it, you know, and you know, they're there. And, um, then, um, the people in my hometown started taking notice. It's like, Hey, people are coming to watch this guy in small town America. Um, and got some pretty big scholarship offers, you know, LSU being one of them, um, Ole Miss. I visited, um, Bear Bryant when he was still at, um, Alabama, but they didn't, I, I was never going to play there. I, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. And, uh, you know, I was, Tulane just seemed like the best fit for me. You know, it's like, oh my God, an education I can never afford and they had made it to two bowl games in a row. And, all, you know, so I went to Tulane and <clears throat> it was all based off of just being a good high school athlete, which was kind of odd. So that was the beginning of the whole fitness. You know, I didn't just wake up one day and go, oh, I'm 500 pounds. Let me see if I can lose weight. And OK, now I'm, I'm the next fitness expert. It was like a lifetime of meandering into a gym and then getting a degree in exercise physiology and nutrition and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So there you have it. I love it. And I think one of the things I gather from that is really you were just chasing curiosity. And I think a lot of times people 
especially right now, I feel like I've been getting an absurd amount of messages and comments about how do you find your purpose? You know, this is something that people seem to be struggling with. And I really think chasing curiosity and just trying new shit is a great way to discover what lights a fire underneath you. And for you, that happened at such an early age, which is amazing. You also mentioned something, Vinny, about your childhood being in this very tight-knit Italian community. And that sense of tribe has seemed to become a little less prevalent, at least in the West. And I'm talking pre-COVID as well. Do you feel that to be the case as well? And, and how is the importance of tribe, you think, uh, part of linked to our health? You know, that sense of community and belonging. I, I think it's paramount. Um, uh, yeah, look, it, it, long before COVID or anything like that, um, we, we lost the nucleus family in this country. Um, once, and by the way, I don't, I don't, cast aspersions on anyone for doing anything, right? I think it's all great. But, you know, it, it meant something to have, you know, a mom and a dad in the house and, you know, you got the nurturing from one and the discipline from the other back and forth, you know, and they took turns doing that. Um, and in my community, the grandparents were around and the great grandparents were around and the Joe Bonadonna's were around, you know, my, my great aunts and uncles and everyone, they were all there. You really couldn't get away with much without someone seeing it. As a matter of fact, it was my great uncle Frank who introduced me to Joe. You know, he, you know, he, this is Joe. And I talk about it in my book, Fitness Confidential. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it does make a, a big difference. And, you know, now a lot of people I talk to, you know, because I do these consults and I just kind of do the consults out of, out of love because it's not really a way to make money. I charge for it, but it's, you know, it's just something I do to, to help people. And one of the things I hear over and over is, yeah, I was a latchkey kid, you know, <clears throat> I lived with my mom or I lived with my dad and he or she had to work or both of my parents were in the house, but they both had to work. And my sister and I came home and we were home at from three o'clock to seven o'clock every day. And we were able to eat, you know, mac and cheese and cereal and ice cream, whatever we wanted. And therefore now I'm 500 pounds, you know? So you hear that kind of stuff over and over that really didn't exist when I was a kid. Not that much as, you know, at least. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I see that as well coming up for people is these little traumas, emotional traumas, different absences, and maybe we're not conscious of them when they're happening in the present moment, but they manifest into our perceptions and beliefs later in life. And oftentimes those belief systems and perceptions don't serve us as adults. So I think that's a good transition you know, a lot of your work is around food and, and a lot of it, in my opinion, is about like busting some of these myths that have been fed to us, you know, from the 60s, from the 70s. And we'll dive deeper into that. Um, 
So, so what, what, what role, before we do dive deep into that, what role do you think emotion plays into people's eating habits and decisions? Yeah, that's an interesting question because, you know, I'm at 58 years old, I still, I, I, I'm very mindful of what's going on around me at least. And, um, you know, we just had the Christmas holidays and, um, you know, that there's a certain thing, you know, there's a certain smell to Christmas and, you know, my wife was making a, some sort of Christmas cake and I can smell it in the kitchen. Right. And, my my 12-year-old me wanted to go in there and lick the bowl. And I don't eat sugar anymore. You know, it's like, you know, and I know I'm going to have to have Christmas cake at some point, you know, in order not to upset the apple cart, right? And that's fine. I can have it on Christmas Day and go, oh, my God, honey, great job on this cake. And, and, and of course, I would really enjoy it because who doesn't love sugar? But that guttural reaction of, ooh, I can hear that mixing bowl in there. And, and when I was a kid, I'd go in there with the finger and, you know, do that. My mom loved it, you know, and, and you know, and you, one day I walked in and she was making something for a friend and it was a strong cinnamon smell. And it reminded me of when I was a kid, you know, Saturday morning, my mom would make these cinnamon sticky buns. And in my head, you know, the, the emotion, man, you go right back to that moment. You know, Marcel Proust wrote a lot about this, you know, how smells can make you, you know, really go back to a time. You, you can be right in that moment. And, you know, even though she, I don't know what she was making with cinnamon, but boy, in my mind, there were sticky buns coming. You know, so, uh, you know, I think uh, we, we have to remove ourselves from that. And if you don't think companies don't understand this, well, you're wrong. If anyone thinks that, because you take a company like um, uh, Cinnabon, you, you walk through a mall or an airport or whatever, and you smell those Cinnabon buns. And, it, you know, it takes every bit of your power to keep walking, not to go back to that childhood memory of, of the sticky bun, right? So I don't discount that at all. As a matter of fact, I help people work through those situations. For sure. Yeah. And what, what's the technique that you would help someone get over some of this, maybe emotional triggers or eating habits from their childhood? So they're not creating the same results later in life as an adult. A lot of it is acknowledgement, just recognizing that it, there, you're now in a situation and if you could just walk away from that situation, you know, if you could just walk past it, you know, if you walk past it, you've only had that moment of, oh boy, I really want the sticky bun, right? I really want that Cinnabon. But if you just walk past it, you've now really, you passed a problem that would have been much bigger because let's say you had stopped by think, oh, what's one sticky bun, right? And you stop and you get it. Well, now you know you're eating that thing, and and if you could feel guilt-ridden by it, or you might just feel elated, but now your liver is a meritocracy. Your liver is only going to handle what you put in it. It doesn't care what your emotions are, right? Your liver is like its own little Kremlin. It's going to just do what it's going to do, and it's going to go. Wait a minute, Jeremy just gave me a sticky bun. There was a bunch of carbs in here. I must send down a bunch of um, 
well, a little sugar, so I need to get some insulin on that really, really fast uh, so that I can spread it out, right? I, I need to do something with this. But wait a minute, that sticky bun also had complex carbs. So I don't just have a sugar, you know, jaunt. I, I now have a, a, a load, you know, you have a glycemic load and you have to keep releasing insulin. So you've moved on with your life and your liver is still dealing with this and your brain and your hormones are still dealing with this one little situation. And when you can understand that, you know, from that kind of cartoon model I just built, it makes it easier to walk past it and not do it to begin with. And maybe stop at the next coffee shop you see in the mall and drink a coffee and, and just move on. Right, because the coffee is not going to hurt you. As a matter of fact, I can make it. I can make a strong point that coffee is one of the healthiest things you can drink next to water. Right, so you can take a bad decision to turn it into a good decision and just move on. For sure, yeah, a lot to unpack with what you just said. Uh, a lot of knowledge nuggets, and I think one of the things you mentioned about the feeling of guilt and shame after eating something like this is something that comes up a lot. And it's like, if you are going to occasionally uh, treat yourself to something like that, whether it's a cake from your wife or a Cinnabon at the airport, like just fucking enjoy it. Don't sabotage yourself and just move forward and, and, and let that be just one experience. It doesn't have to dictate the future for you. Um, so in terms of really breaking down, what's happening. Let's use the Cinnabon example. All right. And let's say, you know, it's a full Cinnabon, the frosting, it's not one of the mini ones. Like it's a full size one. Like, can you just give us a quick breakdown of what's happening to the body? Like you mentioned with the insulin on the liver, on the brain, with our hormones, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. It's not just insulin is one hormone that needs to go down and cover that sugar. Right. So that's one problem. Then you have ghrelin, which is a hormone that's supposed to tell you that you're um, you're hungry. Right. You, you, sometimes you get that hunger pain, um, you, you, this cavernous feeling that's ghrelin. Um, and you make that ghrelin reaction can happen really fast. So you still have a stomach full of Cinnabon, yet you think you're hungry. Um, and um, the other one is uh, leptin, which is supposed to tell you you're full. But if you keep tricking those hormones and keep overloading them, you're going to start getting the opposite reaction because you become resistant to them, right? It's kind of like a, when you first start drinking, one beer can get you high. But if you drink all the time, you now need three, four, five beers to get the same high you used to get from one, right? So it's like any other drug, you're trying to scratch that itch and the hormones are not getting you where you need to go. They start working against you, right? Yeah. Now, is, and, part, of that, Vinny, is part of that, is part of that, uh, because basically you're eating something that physically, yes, like it might, it has, it has energy, it has calories, but it doesn't actually have any nutrient density. Is that the reason why it's not going to really satiate you over the long term and 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 your ghrelin is going to elevate like shortly thereafter yeah and by the way it doesn't happen if you do it one time but usually someone who's eating a large cinnabon they're they're not a rookie right <laughs> they've done this kind of thing 
And as you notice, the example I like to give, and I give this example, I, I, I do a lot of, well, I used to do a lot of talks before COVID. Now I do zero talks. Um, the example I like to give is if, let's say you're sitting down, we're in the middle of playoffs in the football season right now. And uh, you're sitting down to watch, you know, the Sunday afternoon games. And you have a bag of Doritos. And let's say it's the family bag. Um, and you could tell yourself, look, I bought the family bag because it was cheaper overall, right? You, you were being prudent with your money. And um, you, so you, you tell yourself, yeah, I'll just eat a few and then I'll just go put the rest away. But before you know it, you've eaten every Dorito and you're licking the inside of the bag and you're thinking about that ice cream that's in the freezer. Okay. You've eaten a ton of carbohydrates, yet you're still ravenous and you still want to eat more. Right. That's a fact. So if I did, if I did the same thing where I gave you, I don't know, a 12 ounce steak, right. And you ate it. And right when you took your last bite of that 12 ounce steak, if I brought out another sizzling steak, you would say, you know, wrap it up, wrap it up. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bring it home. I, I can't, I can't do this. Right. I need to take it. And the difference is, is that a steak is 12 ounces and you're completely sated. A family bag of Doritos is 17 ounces. That's just north of a pound. And you're not sated. You're ready to eat more. Why is that? Right? It's hormones. One is dictating that I'm, your brain is getting the message. I'm still not full. And on the other, your brain is getting the message. Give me that second steak. I'll be eating it tomorrow. Yeah. Right? It's a great example of how you can feel the difference at least. Yeah. And, and I'm guessing also in that same example that because you're probably eating those chips at a very rapid pace, right? You're probably not being very mindful when you're eating those cool ranch Doritos, right? You're scarfing it down. So your, 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 your brain and gut doesn't really have time to communicate like, yo, I am full right now. Rather with that steak, you have to really chew that and you can't like scarf down a steak. I mean, you can, but like you probably really want to enjoy that and digest and absorb it properly. So you're going to chew it and take your time. So it gives your body a little more time, I think, to also signal like it's time to stop eating, bro. You're good now. You're well, good. Yeah, that, that's that, that, that you're, you have a point there. One takes longer to eat. But when you think about it, next time you go to a movie. And I'm the only guy in the movie house that's observing other people. Um, the, the favorite movie snack is popcorn, right? And there's a reason why if you buy the big tub, they'll give you a refill. Because they know you can eat the big tub and you're going to want that much more, right? They know that already. So if you watch people in the theater with the popcorn, when they first walk in, you watch in a previews, they're taking maybe one or two at a time that it's almost this very demure way to eat popcorn. And then one and the fingers become like a, a three finger grab. Right. And then you'll see like the four and then you're smashing it into your mouth. And then you'll see people in the movie lifting that thing up and, and shoveling it in. Okay. That's not a normal reaction to food. You don't start eating steak and go, Oh, I'm just going to have a little piece, a little piece. And by the end, you're, you're ripping it with your teeth in your hands. That doesn't happen, right? 
one, when you're eating Doritos, at first you're picking one out of the bag at a time. And then, oh, look, I just grabbed two. Might as well get those in my mouth. Oh, wait, now I have a sandwich of three. And it goes on and on. It's the same as the popcorn. We, we can't get it in fast enough. We can't scratch the itch fast enough. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's a drug. It's a drug. I, mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure this is the first time in human history where we're actually overfed as a society, but we're so undernourished. And, um, you know, if, if, if it continues this way, I mean, it, diabetes continues to skyrocket, obesity continues to skyrocket. And obviously the sourcing and food supply has a big, uh, part in that. So, um, so Vinny, like accelerating past, um, your kind of your childhood curiosity, playing college football that comes to an end. And how do you end up in Southern California working and training some celebrities? And, and if you don't mind, I would love to hear maybe uh, a couple stories, if you don't mind sharing. Sure. Well, the whole training thing um, started, I was still in college and, and trainers, you're way too young to know this, but trainers were not a thing in the early 80s, just didn't, didn't exist. Uh, you're actually talking to one of the first in-home trainers. That, that's how it started. There were no big box gyms with trainers. Gold's Gym was around. There was a few around the country and what have you. And most gyms had the guy's name, like aforementioned Joe Bonadonna. We opened Joe's Health Club. You know, people had small gyms in small towns. That's the way they worked. You didn't have Bally's or 24-Hour Fitness or LA Fitness or any of that stuff. It just didn't exist. <clears throat> so um, it was very odd for guys like me. I, I was in New Orleans doing it. Uh, Jake Seinfeld was in, uh, Steinfeld was in uh, California. There was a guy in New York. There was like three or four of us around the country, period, that were doing this, this newfangled thing called in-home training. And um, as a matter of fact, Shape Magazine came down and did a whole um, article on me talking about, you know, why would people pay for this and have you come into their homes? And it was just such a new thing. Um, I also had the gig at Newman School. Um, it was a high school that was down the street from where I went to college at Tulane. Newman School had the, the richest kids in New Orleans, all the oil barons, all their kids went there. And subsequently, uh, the Manning kids went there, Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, Cooper Manning. And um, um, Cooper, I actually took Cooper, I, I took him to um, spring break. I used to take the, I was a young teacher, so I would take the kids to spring break and chaperone. Cooper was one of those kids. Peyton was a bit younger. He came along a little later. And then Eli was really young. Um, but, I, you know, I was working there as a strength and conditioning coach. I also had a radio show in New Orleans called Talking Fitness, which became basically a podcast <laughs> in recent history. And all of that was going on. And, and I kept getting called to LA, you know, just to work one off with someone who needed to gain or lose weight for a movie because there weren't anyone really doing it back then. And um, that led to me going to LA more often. The weather was nice out there year round. There was no rain in the summertime. And I just packed up my car one day and left. I didn't really know anyone there. How old were you when you did that? I was uh, 29. Okay. 
That's, yeah. that's eerily similar. Sorry to interrupt you. It's eerily similar. When I was 24, six years ago, I packed up my Honda CRV and headed uh, from California to South Florida, not really knowing anyone, not having a plan. So I can definitely relate to that. Continue on, brother. No, it, it was it was like that. I, I went and um, I had no way of making a living as a trainer because I didn't know anyone. I, I didn't have a uh, an, an in. I didn't have a family member or anyone to vouch for me. And um, I met this actress um, named Alexandra Paul. Um, she's been in a bunch of movies, um, a lot of television or whatever. We were about the same age and we became friends. And she said, you know, you could actually make some money as a model. And I was like, come on, Alexandra, I'm 29 years old. And, you know, <laughs> I have crow's feet already. And I'm I'm kind of a big guy. Aren't models like little skinny, you know? And she goes, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not talking about a regular model. Your your abs are insane. You know, we used to go out to the stairs in Santa Monica and work out and this kind of stuff. She's like, they pay for abs like yours in LA. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, you could be in beer commercials and all this kind of stuff. Because let's face it, guys that drink a lot of beer, they have eight packs on their stomach. Right. And that's what they want for the commercials. And um, she convinced me to go visit um, an agent and I did, and they hired me on the spot. And um, that's how I made my living for the first two years, you know, just doing ads and it paid well. But every time I went on a shoot, I would talk to the director. I would talk to the cameraman. You know, I would talk to anyone to try to get me clients. And one of the first clients I got was a woman at Playboy. Um, she was a, um, she was uh, like a, she was a, a VP of something, some department at Playboy. And she was like, I don't know, 375 pounds. And um, she hired me to, to get her to lose weight. And I took, I took a lot of weight off. I took like, I got it down to 170. I took like, 180 pounds off of her, something like that. And she became like my biggest billboard. You know, they started hiring me to train playmates and a playboy and all this kind of stuff. And playmates are kind of adjacent to real celebrities. And, you know, that's you how bang any playmates. <laughs> um, no, not the ones that train. Well, no, I shouldn't say that at all. Um, I, I had a couple of short relationships with playmates. I wouldn't call it banging, but um, there was a couple of girls where, you know, you know, how you would go in and out of relationships. It would last for like a month or six weeks. And yeah. Then you realize that there's really nothing between you except the sex. And, Definitely. You know, Vinny. Vinny. So let me ask you, bro, when is this picture from with these apps? For those of you listening, I'm pulled up an image of Vinny. Um, yeah. Uh, first of all, where did they, where did they get, where did they get the idea to call you the angriest trainer? And number two, do you still have these apps? Uh, yes. And, uh, on the abs, uh, I was 50. Well, let's see, uh, how old would I was born in 62. So, and, uh, 2012, when we shot the cover of the book, that was during the shooting of the cover of the book. So, okay. Got it. So, I was in my fifties right there. Damn, bro. That's goals right there. I mean, I got nice abs, but I'm 30. Like 
20, 20 plus years down the road, I hope I look like that. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure you will. Um, you just have to keep doing what you're doing, right? And um, and yeah, I'm 58 now and the abs are still there. And um, it's because I just watch what I eat. And I, I do sit-ups twice a week. That's it. People think, oh, you must do some insane routine. No, sit-ups twice a week. Um, you don't have to overtrain any part of your body. Um, angriest trainer. When we started the podcast, we were trying to, we didn't know what a podcast was and we felt like we needed a hook. And, um, we were going to call me America's trainer or something like that. And there was a company called America's trainers.com. So we couldn't use that. They're not, they're not even a fitness company. They're training like pipe fitters or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. And we couldn't call me America's trainer. So Serena goes, well, you're angry about what, you know, goes on, you know, how people are being lied to. Just call yourself the angriest trainer. And I'm like, ah, sounds good. So we went with that for a long time. But then when I started doing national TV shows, they would spend the first five minutes explaining to me that I wasn't angry. And I kept getting caught with that title of angriest trainer. So I, I just kind of walked away from it. But it's yeah. still out there. What up, fam? Sorry to interrupt today's show, but I have some special news to share. I am going to be launching my group coaching program very, very shortly. And I want you to be a part of it. I want you to be a part of this extremely exclusive community that we are creating. So, if you are interested in applying and finding out more information, make sure to check the link in the show notes and make sure to stay tuned because again, there's going to be limited spots and I want to make sure that you are part of this. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah. You don't strike me as, as angry. So, so, okay. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you're, you're in your fifties and I personally work with a lot of men who are, you know, had a lot of success financially, business-wise, but they've neglected their health, their relationships in the process. And a big thing that happens when you start to get a little older is your hormones and also your energy levels become a little depleted. So what are some things that you recommend people listening? Maybe, you know, they're in their 30s, their 40s, and they start to notice their energy levels be a little depleted. What are some natural solutions that you recommend that have helped you and your clients? Well, it's funny you should mention success and then uh, health at the same time, because I did it the opposite of how most people do it. Most people try to become successful and then go, okay, I can retire young and get healthy. Um, I, I worked on my body the whole time and was basically not broke. I was never broke in my life, but in my best years, I was making maybe $180,000 in LA. And most years I made about you know, between 100 and 120. Now to put that into perspective for anyone who thinks that's a lot of money, when you live in LA, you cannot afford a house on that. They won't give you a loan, right? Nowhere in LA. So um, I was living on that amount of money pretty much, you know, um, but Money never mattered to me that much. The thing that mattered to me was the success of, of health, 
right? And um, so when you get older, you know, I, I, I have a, a, a little thing I always say, the older I get, the faster I used to be. Um, you, you can't keep up, you know, it, you know, hormones, you know, play into it. You know, I, I've had low testosterone now for years, ever since I had cancer when I was 45. My testosterone never, ever seems to get past 300. When I get checked, it's usually in the mid to low 200s. And if you watch the commercials on television, they will tell you, hey, check with your doctor, you might need testosterone now. I still work out, I still I'm able to put on muscle, I'm able to have sex, all of that stuff with low testosterone. So I'm not really sure what they're selling to people. Um, muscle will grow at the same rate with low testosterone as it will with high testosterone. Um, that's not to say that if you take exogenous testosterone like these bodybuilders do, well, we obviously we see what happens to them, right? But that's at the expense of the rest of their life. I mean, these guys have problems, you know, into perpetuity. And, and if you look around, look at these guys, man, when they were 25, 30, 35, and 40, they were on top of the world. A lot of them are dead at 60. A lot of them. Yeah. And if they're not dead, they look like they're dead. Yeah. You, know, you have to be yeah. careful. Yeah. And, and, Tell us a little bit about this journey with cancer and kind of that road to healing and recovery and what changed for you after that, if anything, in terms of the way that you just approach life, the way that you approached your day-to-day regimen and, and routine. Get ready to get bored to death. Um, I possible with you, Vinny. Come on now. <laughs> I, I was um, an ultra athlete, meaning I was one of these guys that would ride bicycles. My average week on a bicycle in the season was 30 hours a week, somewhere between 25 and 30 hours a week on a bike. So you go, Jesus Christ, that's a lot of riding. Yes, it, yes, it is. Uh, and the races would sometimes be 500, 600 miles nonstop, right? And that would take anywhere from 35 to 45 hours, mm. right? So I was into it. I was into it deeply. So that was all great until I found out that I had leukemia. And um, not only did I have leukemia, but it was a bad bout of leukemia. And I had to stop everything. I had to stop working. I couldn't train. Everything was about, look, you're going to die. You need to go on chemo right away. And oddly enough, since I didn't have kids, I wasn't in a relationship. Um, which is all kind of sad when you think about it. Um, I was oddly okay with death, if that makes any sense. I was, I was fine with, okay, if I die, I die. And then as I'm going through chemo, you start thinking a lot. And I started thinking, what are people going to say about me when I'm laying in that casket? Right? It's a morbid thought. But it's like, what are they going to think about old Vinny? What are you going to say? And part of my mind, you know, I, the narcissistic end of it was going, they're going to talk about how great I was. And at one time I told that great joke and man, he can really tear it up on a bicycle. And then I said, then the other mind takes over. Right. And you go, wait a minute. I haven't done a fucking thing in my life. I, I, what have I done? 
you know, they're going to say, oh, yeah, remember that guy, Vinny? He was, was he like a trainer in L.A. or something? Whatever happened to him? Oh, yeah, he died when he was 45. Oh, that's a shame. So I realized that I didn't make a mark on the world at all. Um, and it was important for me to, to make a mark. And I told myself at that point that if I get to live, if I beat this thing, I need to figure out, and I didn't have a game plan. I just knew I had to, I had to stick to how can I be of service to other people, not just to make a living, right? Because, yeah, I was, I was everyone's servant. I would go in. I was a dutiful trainer. But how they paid me for that. I started thinking, how can I help other people and not expect anything in return? So that if this cancer comes back or if a bus hits me or something else, I can die going, you know what? At least I made a mark. And um, that, that was the beginning of it, right? I didn't know how it was going to happen or why it was going to happen. I just knew I had to make it happen. And the way it happened was because of something called a BlackBerry. Do, do you even know what a BlackBerry is? The phone? Yeah. Yeah, I know what a BlackBerry is. Yeah. The BlackBerry changed my life. Um, I, it was a year or two after cancer, and my, my flip phone broke. And my now wife, Serena, we were dating at the time. She's, she's one of these techie people, right? And she goes, no, 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 you're not getting another flip phone. You're getting a BlackBerry. What's a BlackBerry? She goes, it's like a computer, but it's in your hand and you could talk on it. Okay, I'm getting a BlackBerry, I guess. And about two weeks after that, one of my clients showed me how to play a game on, on BlackBerry. It was called Brick Breaker. I'll never forget this. Do you know, it's called Brick I don't break. know the game Brick Breaker. You just break bricks. And she shows, she goes, you know, you can play a game. It's already on your BlackBerry. You just play this game. And I went, I don't play games. And she goes, yeah, try it once. And I did. And she goes, oh, that's a pretty good score. And then you, you got 600. That's pretty good for a first timer. And I said, well, what's a good score? And she goes, well, I can get to 18,000. And I was like, well, I only got 600. And she goes, so I went home. I, I wanted to go back and show her name is Jill. I wanted to show her that I can beat her at brick breaker. So if I was on the toilet, if I was early for a client, if I was, I was playing brick breaker for about, I'm going to say a week. And the scores went from 600 to a thousand to 2000 to 5,000 to 10,000. I was getting good. Right. I was also thinking to myself, what are you doing? What are you doing? What is this? This is not what you do. This is not how you waste time in life, right? So I'm, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. The first thing I have to do is never play Brick Breaker again or any other game because it's just a time suck. But then I'll look back at that BlackBerry and I said, Serena told me that this was a computer. I wonder if I can use this to create something, to create as if I was home on my computer. See, I was in a car all the time. So in between clients, maybe I can create something on a computer. And that was the beginning of, you know, figuring out maybe I could bring low carb to the world. Maybe I can do this kind of stuff. And it culminated in a book and everything else. You know, I started writing a book. 
And the book became the first big thing for me, right? Just searching things online and thinking about things and going, look, nobody was talking about keto in 2010 when I started doing this, right? There I was, you know, writing about low carb, something I've been doing with clients for years, right? And I was so scared to call it ketogenic because I knew doctors would just come out and go, he's telling people to go into ketoacidosis, which is bullshit. And, you know, so I just called it no sugars, no grains. And look where we are today, you know, and it all started from me playing brick breaker and realizing that I shouldn't be playing games if I want to change the world. Fuck yeah. I love that, brother. And I think if you're listening right now or you're watching, you know, I always ask my clients in my community, where are you leaking energy? You know, whether that's in a relationship on social media, where are you leaking that valuable focused energy that could be used to serve? Like Vinny mentioned, because I think we're all born to serve in some capacity. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I was honestly, when you were say, saying this story about uh, Brick Break, I was like, what the fuck does this have to do with like the Blackberry saving his life? Um, but now it all comes full circle. So I appreciate that. And it also makes me wonder like, what ever happened to Blackberry? Because for like two years, for two years, BlackBerry was the shit. Like everyone on Wall Street had it. It was like the elitist phone. And then the iPhone came and just destroyed it and, and never looked back. So, um, well, wait, hang on. Can, can I say this about that? If we could stay on Blackberries for another second. Of course. I was the last user of a BlackBerry, I'm pretty sure, because all of my friends, I'm going to name drop here. Uh, Howie Mandel, you know, gets all the latest stuff and we were good buddies and the whole thing. And, uh, you know, he, he was like, you need to get, you need to get a, you know, a, a, an iPhone. And I was like, you're, you're just tapping on glass. How's that even working? It was like voodoo to me. I said, look, I have these little keys. I can actually, I don't even have to look down the text anymore. I just know where the keys are. You can't do that. And he was like, dude, you're in the dark ages. What, what are you doing? And, we went back and forth and he, he let me try his phone and sat there and laughed at me. And every time we would show up at Starbucks to have a coffee, he would go, Hey, why is this? And he would hand me his phone. And I was like, I'm not doing this anymore because everyone was laughing because I couldn't get my thumbs to hit the numbers, right. Or anything else. Right. And they would just sit there and laugh at me. And I just finally went, screw it. I'm not doing this. And I kept my Blackberry forever until the last one. Did you keep it till? I don't know what year it was, but I was definitely into podcasting. I was still using a BlackBerry. Wow. All right. My, my book was already number one on iTunes and all that shit. I still had a BlackBerry. So I'm not really sure. But yeah, I kept it forever. Talk a little bit about, about you know, the book and then also, you know, the hat you're wearing, the documentary that is pretty recent that really blew up and I believe at one point was number one on either iTunes or Netflix. I'm not sure which one, but talk to us kind of about that journey, uh, both the creation process and then really the main takeaways. Yeah. Um, the movie fat, the original movie fat, a documentary, I say the original because now fat two just came out like 20 days ago. Um, 
But when the movie came out, it went to number one on iTunes. Now, and it stayed at number one for a long time. That's significant because uh, the number one movie at the time was the one about the guy, you know, Free Solo, the guy that was climbing, you know, El Cap. Yeah. We kept knocking that guy off, right? And, you know, and, and then a, a movie, an Aretha Franklin movie came out. It was right after her death and the whole thing. And that knocked us off for a while. And then we went back to number one again. We just kept going back to number one. And the whole industry was like, who is this guy? And how, how are they doing this? And we didn't know how. It was just people were just mesmerized by this movie on how we got fat, right? And, um, and then Gravitas, Gravitas Ventures, who was the distributor, you know, wrote to us like two months in and said, this is now the number one movie we've ever put out. And I wrote back to Brendan and I said, you mean the number one documentary? He goes, no, the number one movie. We've never had a movie do this well. You could find that movie still on iTunes. It's on Amazon Prime. It's on 65 different VODs around the world. And back when people were still flying on airplanes, it was on I know Malaysian Airways was one of the furthest airlines in the world, um, but Alaskan Airlines, Delta, all these, I would get on planes to go give a talk and I would immediately scroll to, oh, there's my movie. And then I would wait until the plane was up and I would go take a leak in the back and then look at everybody's little screen on the way back to see who was watching my movie. You know, it was, it just became like this, this crazy thing. The one place you will never find my movies is on Netflix. Mm. or Hulu. I refuse to sell to them. And here's why. The movies are so controversial is that if there's one vegan that works, that's in a higher position, they might give me a half a million dollars or a quarter of a million dollars to have that movie. Right. But they can bury it and it will never be seen again. Right. So I won't sell it. I'll leave it out there on the open market so that people can always find them. We do not live in a free place anymore where people can go, hey, Netflix, put this up. They can go, yeah, here's a half a million bucks. Hey, Netflix, where's my movie? Yeah, we didn't put it up. We're good. Mm. Because someone just doesn't like the fact that you're saying meat is good. You know, bang, bang, bang. Cancel culture. Yeah. The cancel culture. So, Vinny, you kind of, I mean, it sounds like you joined the Mile High Club, bro. I mean, you got people, you got people watching your movie up 10,000 feet above the ground. Like, I, I mean, I know that's not the technical definition of the mile high club, but I think what you <laughs> achieved, what you achieved might even be better. I don't know. Yeah. You know, one, I was on one flight and most of the time um, I don't shave until I have to look young and I look very old when I don't like right now I have a beard and, and, um, you know, I just don't, I don't look good with a beard, but I like the beard. I was on a flight going somewhere and the guy next to me had the movie. He put the movie on. Right. And I'm like, oh boy, he's got the movie on. All right. So I waited about 15 minutes and I went, Hey man, you enjoying that movie? And he goes, yeah. I said, that's me. That that's me in the movie. That's my movie. And he goes, yeah, right. Oh no, it's me. And he goes, okay, bro. And he just turned away from it. I couldn't convince the guy that it was my movie. And I went, God, I, I really have to shave more often, you know? But yeah, it, it's that kind of thing. It, it's, it's exciting to watch people watch it. Yeah. 
No, for sure. I can't wait. I haven't watched it yet, um, but I'm definitely, I literally have it uh, on my like weekly learning that I update every Sunday night. So it's there. And I promise this week I'm going to watch it. So I can't wait to provide some feedback and we'll, and we'll provide a link in the show notes for that as well. So people can access that with ease. And Vinny, so, so let's just spend, you know, five to 10 minutes debunking some myths out there in the fitness and the health and the nutrition space. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll get us started and then I'll let you just kind of take over. So counting calories. Not a good idea. Uh, look, there's nothing you could do with impunity, but counting calories is going to get you into like a diet culture kind of thing. And, and we know that doesn't work, right? So you'll say, what do you mean? I don't have to count calories. Uh, if you just count your carbs and keep them out, you know, by and large, keep complex carbs, simple carbs, just keep them all out. You, you know, the example I gave earlier of the steak, you will naturally stop eating when you're sated, right? So there's no reason to count calories. Once you fall into eating correctly, there's no reason to count anything. You're going to get to right where you need to be naturally. There was no time in history before the 1970s where anyone even knew what a calorie was, right? My grandparents think, oh, that's too caloric. <laughs> Those words didn't really exist. And they yeah. just ate until they were full and then they stopped, right? Yeah. And nobody was fat. Through history, no one was fat until recently when we started with all the, uh, the you know, just all the processed foods. Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. And <laughs> yeah, man, it's, it's, especially when people talk about uh, calorie deficit, right? And for me, like, yeah, that might be true. Like to lose weight, you need to be in a calorie deficit. But it's basically sending the message that all that matters is your weight. And it's like, that's not health. That's not health like making sure that you exert more calories than you eat. In my opinion, it just leads to obsessive behavior. It leads to a lot of self-sabotage, a lot of guilt, like you mentioned. And food is supposed to be fun. Like this is part of the human experience. You know, we gather, we enjoy, we, we practice gratitude for the delicious nutrients that we have access to. Um, how about cholesterol? You know, uh, hey, before, wait, before we move on to cholesterol, I, I want to say something, you know, let's take a company, you know, you mentioned calorie deficit, you know, take a company like um, uh, Weight Watchers and, you know, Weight Watchers, they, they will tell you that they have a plus or minus 2% rate of, of success, meaning, Zero people ever truly succeed on Weight Watchers. So you you might sit there and go, well, Vinny, that's not true. You know, I have a friend who lost 120 pounds doing Weight Watchers. And if you ask him, if you press him any further, it's like, did they gain any of it back? Yeah, actually, they gained 140 back, you know, because when you start talking calorie deficit, um, and you, then you start, you know, warming in that word, you know, um, or that phrase, um, uh, energy, you know, and you, your calories, energy, and people say, well, the laws of thermodynamics, right? 
Okay, well, let's use let's use your theory of the laws of thermodynamics on humans. But by doing that, let's talk about a car. If you fill your car up and drive it, right, from Florida heading back to Los Angeles, somewhere around Alabama, you're going to run out of gas. Now, if you're following your definition on how to lose weight, you need to still get to that car to California without filling up again. You've run out of energy, yet you're telling the car to continue going. Unless you get out and push, and I like to see that happen when you get into the hills of Arkansas, it ain't going to happen, right? So the loss of thermodynamics doesn't play in. If you burn all of your calories, you're, you're not going to just naturally go to the calories that are on your body. As a matter of fact, the great Gary Taubes, who lives in your neighborhood now, uh, will tell you, your body might tell you you're starving, even if you have 300 pounds of fat on your body to expend. So it's a very interesting phenomenon. I didn't mean to go off on a diatribe, but I just wanted that to be clear for your audience. No, no, I appreciate you you doing that. And moving into cholesterol, uh, I think when, when was it, when was it, Vinny, that you started to see all of these restaurants and health stores have egg white options, egg white omelets, egg beaters, all of these things. Like when did that become a thing in the early 90s? Yeah, it, yeah, I, I wish I could put a time on it. I, I'm going to say I was in LA when it became a commercial thing. Bodybuilders were doing it back in the 70s, but they weren't doing it all the time. Um, as you know, bodybuilders, or you may not know, bodybuilders are very unhealthy people. Uh, they're drug abusers, for one. Um, I, I can say this because I was around it and that for a long time. Um, so number one, they're drug abusers. Number two, and more importantly, um, they will be heavy up until three or four weeks before competition, and they'll do this, this big cutting routine, right? And during that time, they will limit fat. So instead of having the eggs that they were eating throughout their whole training, they would just cut out the yolk because they felt like the fat in the yolk, um, it's gone now. It's, you know, I don't think anyone believes it anymore. But the cholesterol myth is still alive. That's still there. Yeah. And would you would you want to take a minute to kind of explain maybe why the myth became so prominent and maybe the truth behind it? Well, this is conjecture on my part, but again, going back to when I was a kid, no one ever heard the word cholesterol, right? Um, there was some weak link in one study that said that um, a higher cholesterol was synonymous with uh, heart disease. Right. Since then, since then, that same study has been looked at a thousand times, and the exact opposite is the truth. Yeah. But they were trying to, they were trying to, they were squinting as hard as they could. Ansel Keys and company were trying to make cholesterol the bad actor. So at the same time, you have all of these drug companies that are coming up with statins. And statins were basically for people who had already had heart attacks and they had, uh, you know, stents and everything else. This is, you know, in order to keep the blood flowing through these mechanical parts a lot easier, right? Well, once you, you, if you can create a new problem, now your drug can be sold to more people. 
So now you're telling people if your cholesterol number is of a certain number, you have high cholesterol and you're now going to have a heart attack, which nothing could be further from the truth, right? So if you have a number above this fictitious number that we came up with, then you have to take a statin. And as you know, statins are a multi-bazillion dollar industry now, right? So after they figured out, wait, if you have this number, you have to be on a statin. The drug companies went, wait a minute. What if we lower that number? We'll make it even lower. Then we can get more customers. We'll get them sooner. The fact of the matter is, and then they figured out that statins only lowers LDLs because the HDLs, you want to keep them high. So then they started telling, they started coaching us up on LDLs. Now, we went from the 1970s where no one knew what cholesterol was to every person I knew became an, an armchair expert as to, well, my LDLs are this and my ratio is that. You don't know what the hell you're talking about because the only matter when it comes to cholesterol is if you have small dense particles and hardly anyone naturally has that. It usually comes from eating seed oils. It comes from um, uh, hydrogenated oils, trans fats, stuff that people really don't eat unless they're eating a crappy diet. Does that make sense? Of course. So sure. we, took, we took one bad thing in cholesterol and turned it into LDL, turned it into you need a stat and turned it into everything else. Yeah. So which is the code, which is the marker of cholesterol that people should be a little more cautious and aware of? First off, uh, you need to find a doctor that will even administer the test to get the, the particle density test. Uh, there's a name for it. And I don't know what it is. I can't remember. And then after you get that test, the doctor that may have ordered it for you may not even know how to read it. Most doctors don't know how to read these tests. But there are a bunch of cardiologists around the country. You can look them up online. These guys have studied this. They know how to read the results. And they can tell you the truth behind cholesterol. You know, there are people out there with total cholesterols in the 600s. And they will never die of heart attacks. Ever. Right? And there are people with 150 total cholesterol. And they will drop dead of a heart attack. So it has nothing to do with cholesterol. It has to do with heart disease and how that heart disease may have happened. And the one thing we can point to is morbid obesity is a comorbidity when it comes to, you know, heart disease. So maybe look at that first. Yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, I think what you mentioned about these industrial seed oils, hydrogen, hydrogenated oils, uh, and, and obviously like the processed sugar and, and the sugar of all types really um, can manifest into a lot of these things, you know, whether that's pre-diabetes to heart disease to uh, an obesity and all of these chronic diseases that are really based on our decisions, you know, that we have the ability to make every single day. Um, so I'm super grateful for you coming in here and sharing so much of your story and, and, and dropping, dropping so much knowledge. I know this is going to impact a lot of lives. Um, Vinny, I'm curious to know brother, because this is thrive university and my mission is to really empower and inspire people with the knowledge that they didn't receive in typical classic school. So I'm curious to know, what is one thing that you wish you would have been taught in school 
whether that's at Tulane or high school or whatever? Um, you know, it's not what I would have been taught. It's what was taken away from me and it's taken away from almost everyone. And I'm not really sure how you change it. You know, both of my parents were school teachers. And I'll never forget, about 30 years ago, I was having a conversation with my mom. And I said, you know, I said, you know, mom, when, when I was really young, I had all of these really creative thoughts of, of how to change the world and how to do things and how to become how I can make this product and that product and all this kind of stuff. And I said, I don't seem to have that creativity the way I did when I was a kid. And my mom says, you know, most kids have creativity and wandering minds where they think of all this great stuff. I said, yeah, where does that go? What happens to that? And she said, teachers, teachers, teachers ruin that. They take it away. And my mom was a teacher. She was a teacher for 37 years. Wow. And she said, they don't mean to take it away, but they're trying to control 25 and 30 kids at a time. And they don't have time for that minutia, if you will. And I think one of the things I was able to get back in my life is that kind of childlike, um, just go for it. And, and it, it really took cancer for me to, to go, you know what? I did it their way for 45 years. I'm going to do it my way for whatever time I have left. And um, look, at, at, at 45 years old, that's, the book came out, I was 50. And when that picture was taken, I was around 50. That was eight years ago. I'm 58 now. Since the book came out, um, I don't know if you guys talk about money and health and healthy money relationships. Of course. But um, the book came out. It was the first time in my life where I had what I called a gob of money, meaning you know, I, I always had enough savings. Like when I, when I got cancer, I had enough savings to make it through cancer, but then I was depleted, right? I had to make money again. Um, and then 08 came and we had that crisis and all that happened. Um, so I, how do I put this? I had this gob of money and I started going, wait a minute. I can, I can go out and buy a new Corvette. I can, I can get that, you know, I shoot skeet and trap and sporting. I can get that shotgun. I can never afford, you know, I was like, I was thinking of all this stuff I could buy with my money. And I was also thinking I can save some of it. I'm responsible. I'll save some of it, but I can, man, I can really go hog wild with, with some of this money. Right. Because I'd never had money before like that. Mm. And um, then I thought about it for a minute and I went, you know what? I always said that if I had money, I would make the world's best vitamins. Because I always felt like everyone was putting crap in vitamins and the whole thing. And instead of going out and buying a new Carvette and buying a new gun and buying anything, I put all the money in savings and I started researching if I can make great vitamins or not. And today that company is well over six years old. It's a multi-million dollar company. It's called Pure Vitamin Club. Um, and once that got rolling and I had that money coming in over and over and over, I said, you know what? I've always wanted to make the best coffee in the world. And I love roasting my own coffee. Mm. Well, next thing you know, I have purecoffeeclub.com, which does very well, right? And um, 
I had a sponsor, F-Bomb. I'll mention him by name. Uh, and Ross was a good friend of mine, Ross Taylor, who started F-Bomb. And, um, you know, I, I love the product. But Ross and his wife, Cara, sold the company to a bigger industry. They sold out, right? And they, they got their money and they went home. I do not fault Ross for doing that. But as soon as they sold F-Bomb to a big company, the first thing they did was charge more and put less in the packet. The next thing they did was they started making crap products, right? So I looked around and went, wait a minute. I have vitamin money and coffee money. I can go into the same business. And we started, you know, NSNG Foods. And we, we now have, you know, my, my, my stuff out there doing the same thing. You know, what what is called, called, foods? No sugar, no, no, sh no sugar. Yeah, no. I, I own the, I own the trademark NSNG, no sugars, no grains. So it's called no sugars is NSNGfoods.com. And the original product is called ultra fat, where I mix together, you know, high fat, medium chain, chain triglycerides with a nut butter. I added some of my own coffee to it to yeah. give it a bit of coffee flavor. And I added um, MCT oil from coconut oil. Um, and the reason it's called ultra fat is I put some of my ultra salt from a vitamin company in it. So it's the synergy of all the companies making this product that you can literally, if you were stuck in a desert or on a mountain, you can live on this. This is like an it's MRI. Like, like a portable little packet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that sounds delicious. I need to try yeah. some of that. Oh, we can't, we cannot keep it, get it, order it right away. We can't keep it in stock. That company, we, we opened it in the middle of the pandemic, you know, because we were ready to open. We were ready to start NSNGfoods.com. We opened it in July and we had to immediately go on a, an apology campaign telling people, listen, we can't fulfill your order. We thought we had enough to cover the whole year. We sold that out in a month. Hey. And that company, yeah, we work around the clock to keep it going. Uh, it's on Amazon now. It's not just at NSNG Foods. You can get ultra fat on Amazon. Amazon called us because I sell a lot of products on Amazon. I sell the vitamins, my book, the movie. So we have a nice relationship with Amazon. And someone called my business partner, Andy Schreiber, and said, you know, Amazon wants to take your ultra fat product and, and, and feature it. And um, Andy says, great, wonderful. And the guy goes, listen, we, um, I have a question. He goes, I've been doing this for 12 years at Amazon. We've never seen anything like this. And Andy goes, like, what? And he goes, well, as you know from your other products, if you, if you get like a 5% return on people clicking through, you're doing really well. 10 and 12% is like unheard of. And Andy goes, so what, we have 12%? And the guy says, no, that's the strange thing. You guys have 60%. We've never seen that at Amazon ever. That's this, this product sells, we can't keep it in stock. And we put it on Amazon with no advertising. People are clicking on it and buying it because it, I don't know if they love the package. I don't know what it is. It must fucking taste delicious, honestly. It does. People, there's, no, there's no sugar in it. That's the crazy yeah, part. People, people will like buy something for it if it's healthy, but like, it also has to have a level of taste and enjoyment. So yeah. man, I acknowledge you, brother. Um, I acknowledge you for just this unbelievable journey that you've been on.
and for really dedicating your life to service. And it's beautiful to watch someone like you pivot and evolve, you know, at, at the age of 45 and really live in purpose, sharing your gifts, sharing your passions every single day. So thank you so much. And Vinny, I just want to give you the opportunity to share anything else that you'd like to with our audience where people can connect with you. And again, brother, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, yeah, you know, I mentioned a lot of what we do around here, the book, the movies, blah, 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 blah. Um, here's something free. And and by the way, it's 100% free. There is no click funnel. There is no, now you need to go buy the bigger thing. I have a PDF on my website. It's it's called What is NSNG or How Do I Do NSNG? It's a 26-page PDF I wrote a couple of years ago after the book became a big success. I realized that there was a chapter I left out and that PDF has become like the Bible. People have lost two, three, 400 pounds. I'm not exaggerating. We, we celebrate these people on my Instagram every Friday. We put up a before and after um, and they all did it for free just by downloading that PDF has now been downloaded well over 300,000 times. Think about that. If I had just put a $10 charge on it, I would have had an extra $3 million in my account. And uh, it remains free. Go get it. It's at VinnyTartarace.com. There's no obligation. Just click on it. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you this. Right next to it, there's something you could pay for for $10. It's uh, a bunch of my podcasts that people love. You don't even need that. You just need the free part. I'm just being honest. Hey, we love that honesty and transparency, brother. Thank you so much, man. And and. You know, it's it's beautiful to have someone like you really leading by example in this space. And I'm excited to continue our relationship and eventually meet in person, maybe go on a bike ride together. Um, yeah, and, and maybe co-create something. So I appreciate you, brother. Same here, Jeremy. And thanks for having me on your wonderful show. Absolutely, my man. And... Sam, you already know what time it is. It's time to stop settling for mediocrity and start thriving. Oh my goodness, fam. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Vinny Tortorich. I know that I gained a lot of inspiration from connecting with Vinny. And sometimes in my own journey, I feel like I hit a wall. I am stagnant and hearing stories like Vinny's of perseverance and persistence and commitment and consistency really remind me to keep on going. And I think we all need that reminder at times. So I'm reminding you that you are unique, special and powerful. So please, please, please do not forget that. As always, fam, if you got value from today's show, make sure to subscribe, share it with a friend. And if you feel called to, please, please, please leave a review. It makes such a big difference in helping us reach more people and impact more lives. I love you so much and I appreciate you so much. I can't wait to see you back here for the next episode. Much love, fam. Peace.